Have you ever gotten into a power struggle with your seatbelt? Yeah? You know what I mean? Maybe it's uncomfortable, you need to adjust something, you, you move forward to resituate, but you pull hard and you pull fast, and you know what happens, right? Yeah, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It operates in accordance with its nature. It fights back, it, it tightens up, keeping you from doing what you are trying to do, and uh, the power move is ineffective, and it's frustrating, And in frustration, um, if you're anything like me, we can tug and tug even harder and harder in a tantrum like you will submit to me moment. And if anybody's looking at you from across, you know, the parking lot, you look like a crazy person in there, right? Just tugging on on your seatbelt. See, in that moment, in that that lapse of, of reason, you forget how true power is to work, right? You haven't wielded power properly. You haven't wielded a reasonable gentleness that would exert power over that silly little strap. You move it slowly, you move it gently, you obtain victory. So, I don't know, we could call this the seatbelt principle if you like. There's no wisdom in wrestling with a seatbelt. Zero. The wisdom of gentleness and weakness prevails. To operate out of what might be called weakness is to show true strength in the situation. Now this is something of an analogy to the irrational, to the broken ways that we use power in this world, to the unloving one-upmanship, to the selfish competition, to the zero-sum gaming and the destructive desire to dominate others. And the church The church is distinctive in its use of power. The church is different than the world. The church is weird. The church is odd. The church has always been a community of peculiar people. I don't know. Maybe that sounds offensive to you to say that the church is weird, odd, peculiar. And and if so, in my opinion, I think that's problematic. So we should embrace the fact that we are a peculiar people. We should embrace the fact that we are a strange community. We have a strange sheen, an odd radiance to us, a right-side upness amidst all the upside-downness of the world. And one of the great problems in the Western world that we have faced and continue to face and is here at large in our present cultural moment is that we try to minimize the difference between the church and the prevailing culture rather than embracing the reality that the kingdom of heaven is radically different than the ways of earth and the kingdoms of men we have often muted minimized and muzzled the strangeness of christianity downplayed it degraded it pushed off its distinctiveness for a number of reasons. For a number of reasons. 
It's common in the Western world to have, again, muzzled its radical nature, attempted to tame it, maybe to tidy it up a bit, make it a little bit more presentable to our neighbors, make it more palatable to the world we live in. That way we might be able to gain some influence with others if we look less like outsiders, look less like weirdos. But in doing so, what we actually end up doing is watering down the wonder of who Jesus is and what it means to be his apprentices in this world. That heaven has, in fact, invaded earth. And something is going on that is not normal. Too often we have dumbed it down and we look less and less like what we're called to be. We look less and less like the shimmering light we're called to be or we taste less and less salty than we are to be. And we end up looking more like a cut-rate copy of culture rather than a brilliant and beautiful colony of heaven on mission here in this world. So there's no way around it. The church is to be a contrast community, not a cheap imitation of culture. And by the way, this isn't some wholesale knock on culture or all the the general graces that God has poured into this world. But the church, as Christ's bride, the church as the colony of heaven here on earth, is distinct. It looks unusual. It has its own earmarks. And it's hard, by the way, to capture just how different from the prevailing culture the church was when it was first born and throughout the years, throughout the centuries since. But it is hard to capture just how bizarre this new thing was that was called the church. Christians in the Roman Empire were considered a social threat. They were a clear and present danger. They were too narrow. They were far too exclusive, too different. We don't have time to do a huge history lesson today, but rewind with me, if you would, just a little bit to the early 1st and 2nd century. The Roman writer Tacitus tells us that Nero blamed Rome's fires there that were raging throughout the city. He blames them on the Christians. They were an easy out. They were a hated people, so why not pin the blame on them? And in Tacitus' writings, he calls the Christians hated They were hated for their abominations by the general population. They were nothing but a deadly superstition. These Christians hated the human race, according to this writer. The writer Suetonius calls Christians a class of people given to a new wicked superstition. They were a backwards people. They just did not get it. The Roman magistrate named Pliny tortured and executed Christians if they wouldn't recant Christ because he felt that they were a danger to society and a danger to the economy in the region in which he oversaw in Pontius Galatia. Celsus, another writer, called Jesus' followers low-class simpletons, their teachers quack physicians, and he said that they were antisocial. They were a threat to the civil and political order. They promoted sedition. Like on and on and on, I could just read you document after document after document of how the Christians were too narrow, too exclusive, antisocial, and that they were backwards. They were backwards kind of people that were ruining the world. They were different. See, Christians were so utterly distinct, they were not only oddities, but enemies of the common way of life. And so, yeah, the church is distinct. It has always been. It is. It will always be. But what 
is it that makes the church so different? Well, there's a number of ways to answer that, but there are a number of historic and global facets or practices of the church that are born of the gospel that we have seen exhibited throughout all the centuries and across the globe. The beliefs of Christians resulted in distinctive ethics. Distinctive ethics, countercultural ways of living in this world, of, of inhabiting this world. And these, these distinctives, they cut across political, national, and denominational lines. And I, I'm going to say that again, um, and I think we really need to soak in that for a second. These distinctives cut across political, national, and denominational lines. It's really important for us to hear and and start to get into our system. And I want to be up front with you as we go into this series, as we go through these five faithful practices of love that made the church distinctive historically and globally. Um, They're going to challenge some of our ways of thinking. Some of our affiliations will be contested. Um, I pray that we have to do some repenting, that maybe there's a a bumper sticker or two that has to be removed or a post or a hashtag or something that, that we go, probably was not in line with Christ. Need to delete that thing. Some of our paradigms are to be shifted, our own narratives reseen and, and rewritten by God's grace. And, and here's what I ask as we go into the series together, um, that we prayerfully and humbly let God's word shape how it is that we see these things. That's what we do as apprentices of Jesus, Right? Right? We let God's word work in us, work on us, shape us, and change us to conform us to the image of Christ. So, these five faithful practices of love that we um, will be looking at um, are as follows. Today is um, love the enemy. The church is called to be a forgiving, sacrificial, and non-coercive people who use power for the good of others. If you didn't write that down, that's okay. I'm going to come back to that, but this is just uh, an overview here. Um, yeah, let's, let's stay on that for right now. Uh, love the poor. That's next week. The church is called to care for the poor and suffering, meeting needs with joyful generosity. The third week, we'll look at how we are to love the vulnerable. The church is committed to the sanctity of life, acknowledging people of all ages as image bearers of God. We promote a culture of life, not of death. The fourth week will be love the body. The church lives by a biblically defined vision of sexuality, marriage, and gender. And then we'll bring this to a culmination with love the other. The church is a multiracial community that values radical hospitality and crosses ethnic boundaries. And so you can see right away these are going to take us into controversial disputed, tension-filled territory. It's going to be a fun January. (laughs) It's going to be a good January. I believe the Lord is going to speak to us and call us to, to new places of abiding with Him and being in the suffering with our neighbors and entering into the ministry that He has you here for. There's no accident you are here, and I don't just mean here in this room, I mean here on this globe, in this city, where you live, in this season, in this cultural moment that he has you, he's designed that for you. He has something for you and for us and all this. And and by the way, it's okay to enter into these difficult territories because we go with Jesus. 
And so we can go joyfully because we go with our Savior and we know that he has to be the one that holds all these truths and intention. He's the one who holds them together for us. And he had a way of entering into difficult things and making everything better, didn't he? And that's who we go with. So uh, you can see again right away with these five that we are going to get into some challenging things. Um, these topics really quickly get appropriated or, or seized by various party lines or ideologies. We can say these ones are red camp, you know, these ones are, are the blue ones, right? We can divvy them up really quickly. But when these themes and topics get untethered from the gospel of King Jesus, they get distorted, they get warped, and they get weaponized really quickly. Has anybody else tasted a truth this past year that has been weaponized to hurt rather than to heal? I mean, it's everywhere. And it's not because that truth is untrue. It's because that truth has been untethered to the one who implements it through love in this world, and that's Christ. Okay, so our goal then is to see all these things in a deep and abiding relationship with Jesus, his cross, his resurrection, his ascension, and his rule and his reign as the perfect king over all things, okay? So how does that sound? Does that sound okay? We're going to enter into that together? Okay, so let's, let's go now into the first one here. Love the enemy. The church is called to be a forgiving, sacrificial, and non-coercive people who use power for the good of others. The church is called to be a forgiving, sacrificial, non-coercive people who use power for the good of others. And this truth is brilliantly displayed in the verses that we just read. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. So let's spend some time seeing what Jesus has to say here. Now, this passage is so good. Jesus is amazing. His responses, and they're so surprising, so, so much of the time. So here in this passage, right, the mother of the disciples, John and James, the, the, the sons of thunder, as they were called, she comes to Jesus with something that sounds like a really good request, something that sounds very, very Christian, right? It sounds right. She trusts that Jesus is, is the Messiah. So she's aligning herself with the right team. She's, she's on the right side of history. She says, hey, Jesus, we're, we're all in. We're all in. We're on your team. We're with you. Let my sons, let my sons be at your left and your right hand. Let them, let them be your guys. Let them sit on the thrones next to you. Let them be part of what you're doing. That's how in we are and what Jesus-loving parent doesn't desire their kids to be sold out for Jesus, right? To be radical ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. Like we, you know, if the verse just stopped here, here's how I would take it. I'd be like, be like her. <laughs> be, like, be like the mom here. Be like John. Be, be like James. But then we have what Jesus says, and it turns the whole thing on its head. So look at this. Jesus, in his gentle and loving way of challenging his people, says, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. See, mom and her sons and all the other disciples misunderstand power. And they misunderstand how the kingdom of God will grow and grow and grow and bless and be victorious. See, the upside-down nature of the world is still deep in their bones. 
and an un-Jesus-like way of seeing the world still holds their imagination captive. So Jesus now turns to John and James who are right there and he says, are you capable? Are you capable of drinking the cup that I am to drink? The cup being often um, a way of saying what your, your destiny is, but in these terms, something much more, which we will get into, so I, I will come back to that. But, but with bravado, these sons of thunder say, yeah, we got you. Let's do this. We're on the winning side. We got this. And just as mom did not know what she asked, the sons don't know what they answer. Again, these, these two, their mom, all the other disciples, still need to learn the very strange ways of Jesus. His kingdom is not like this world. The kingdom of heaven is different. It moves in different ways. The church and his people are distinctive, noticeably, and painfully so. And Jesus in the Gospels labors over and over and over again. To help his people see that the power grabs of this world, the, the coercion that we are used to, the, the manipulative schemes and tactics, the physical, the, the verbal bullying, right? The violence of earth that we are used to, these are not the way true power works. I know you've heard this before, but I'm going to say it again, just maybe say it a little differently. The way up is not up. Right? The way up is down. The way up is not up. The way up is down. <clears throat> and Jesus spends a great deal of time working to show his apprentices in an upside-down world, down is up and up is down. Now, in, in verse 23 here, Jesus gives something of a cryptic but ingenious response to John and James. Um, but we're going to come back to that, okay? We're going to come back to that. So again, I'm not leaving that on the table. It's just not time for it yet. So the way up is not up. The way up is down. Now what happens next in our text is absolutely fascinating. And it comes quickly and it comes subtly. And I almost missed it until Tuesday this past week. It's a commentary on the destructive power of the misuse of power. Look at verse 24. Just that sentence. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Stop. So these two, mom, that you know, they're talking to Jesus, asking for the top spots, and then the other two, ten hear rumor of this. They hear of the one-upping, so to speak. They hear of the power grab. They're mad. They're mad. The word indignant here in, in Greek isn't just like, oh, they're kind of ticked off. Like, they're so mad they're shaking. That's what the word means. It's like to quake. Like, are you kidding me? They're mad. See, the worldly ways that we see and use power they tear community apart. And almost instantly, this power grab tears the community apart. John and James's bid for power and position has an instantaneous ripping apart effect on community. John and James, 
They, they like, we're part of your kingdom. We want to help build it up. And what they do by doing it wrongly is rip the thing apart. Instantaneously, there needs to be forgiveness and reconciliation. There's a disruption in the relationships. And by the way, there is this beautiful, can we have like this beautiful Bible hyperlink nerd moment here real quick? Okay, 2 and 10. I, just, I read through that a couple times, like why did, 2 and 10, why, why is my, my brain buzzing? 2 and 10, okay, help me out here. Why did Jesus pick 12 disciples? 12 tribes. Jesus is reconstituting, so to speak, the nation of Israel, the people of God. These 12 are the symbolic, are they symbolic of the 12 tribes that were to be God's people, to be the light in the world. So here he reconstitutes them, the, the 10 and the 2, the 12. But what happened in Israel's history? Oh, they kind of had some power issues. They kind of didn't love the way God loved. They kind of didn't care for their neighbor. They kind of entered into idolatry and adultery and ripped everything apart. And when they broke apart, they broke into two clumps. What were the numbers? Ten and two. Ten to the north, the northern tribes of Israel, and then two, Judah. And it's almost like God is showing us here, like, again, with the disciples, a microcosm of the church, of God's people at large. When we grab and grasp at power, when we think the way up is up and not down, we actually pull apart what God is working to build. And we are doing this left and right, all over the place. Our current moment is rife with this. Churches splitting denominations splitting because power is being sought after by going up rather than going down. So much division. So often the church wields power in a worldly way, thinly baptizing it in gospel language. Ungodly ambition so often masquerades as mission for God's glory. And it sounds good because it's the right words. And the lack of putting our others before ourselves, it just tears communities apart. As apprentices, we must be vigilant to crucify even the smallest impulses in ourselves to lift ourselves up over others. The smallest impulse left unchecked will grow and grow and grow. That one-upping somebody in a conversation might eventually fruit out, so to speak, in the split of your community group, in leaving a church, maybe in a divorce, who knows. Now, Jesus uses this moment to teach them and us about a crucial distinctive of his people, right? Jesus uses this opportunity to help his apprentices to re-see the world. He's always looking to diffuse their explosive triumphalism, right? Their religiously camouflaged um, Self, self-care, self-pretension. Self-care is the wrong word, but like self-protection. He's trying to diffuse that so they can actually care for, for other people. It's like they have upside-down glasses on, right? At Christmas, we were staying with, um, with our family in Colorado, and one of my nephews got these upside-down goggles, right? These really big, googly-looking things, um, and they did exactly that. They turned everything upside-down, and it was fun to put them on and then like, 
have somebody try to reach out to you and like you couldn't even walk right because everything's upside down and you're disoriented. It's like Jesus is trying to take off these upside down goggles that have to do with love and power. And we are wearing these goggles so often, right? So we are to love our enemy and to serve them, not to climb up over them, to crush them, to dominate them. And this is the way of the world, Jesus says. And he's pushing on on this this ugly fracture in the heart of the disciples. And and he says, if you're not careful, your desire to sit on these thrones is going to make you more like Caesar than it's going to make you more like Christ. Be careful. See, so many bids to overcome the powers that be are simply a new bid to be the powers that be. Let's take a quick look through the history books. You'll find it all over the place that when people think the way up is up and they pull others down, the uh, oppressed become the oppressors. Enemies are not turned into brothers by love. Those who should be brothers are otherized and torn down, and the cycle of violence keeps on rolling. So Jesus goes on, and he teaches them. He says, look, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Now these words here are are really important. Um, So lord it over them and exercise authority. That that phrase, lord it over them, um, is to dominate. And then the exercise authority over them, that is to act in authoritarian kinds of ways. Um, There's a prefix before these words in Greek, which is an amplifier, and it's making these really aggressive, bad, unhealthy kinds of words. And Jesus says, this is not the way of the kingdom. This is what you're used to. This is what's in your muscle memory. This is what's in your your conscious and subconscious. But this is not the way of the kingdom. My kingdom is a kingdom of coercion. Not, Not of coercion, it's a kingdom of affection. Of love transforming and changing everything from the inside out. It's not a kingdom of fighting fire with fire. It's a kingdom of putting out fires with forgiveness. It's not a kingdom of retaliation. It's a kingdom of costly restoration. His kingdom is a kingdom that advances not by the swinging of the sword, but by the sheathing of the sword, by sacrifice and service. First by Christ and then by us. Greatness in his kingdom comes through vulnerability, weakness, service, through dying to oneself and counting others as more significant than ourselves. And though it may feel like it in the moment, greatness doesn't come through maligning a coworker. doesn't come through taking credit for what another has done. It doesn't come through strong-arming someone and deciding with you. It doesn't come through manipulating. It doesn't come through bullying, flexing, cheating on a spouse to get what you want to fulfill your desires. It doesn't come through these ways. True greatness is in bending low, giving your life to serve others. True greatness looks like not re- retaliating on those maybe in your workplace who are unfairly trying to get you fired. 
True greatness looks like the humble service of a mom or dad staying up with their sick child just to be a presence with them while their kid is in pain until they fall asleep. Humble service. True greatness looks like standing in front of someone to protect them even though that person is your enemy. And true greatness looks an awful lot like being a fool in our world. It looks an awful lot like looking stupid. The way up is not up. The way up is down. By the way, this is not some kind of morbid defeatism, right? Some self-loathing. It is simply this. It is love that counts others as more significant than oneself. So you will enter into costly sacrifice for their good. It's using power properly. This is the way of Jesus, right? This is the way of the cross. The church is called to be a forgiving, sacrificial, non-coercive people who use power for the good of others because this is precisely the way of Jesus and what he's done. He didn't come to crush his enemies. He came to be crushed for them. He came not to retaliate, though he had every right, being just, perfect, flawless, but he came to forgive and redeem. And he came to serve by giving himself for us. He didn't come to coerce, but to transform the world through his love by the power of his spirit so that we would see the world in a new way and be in the world in a completely new way. And he has so many ways of talking about this, doesn't he? I mean, he goes through the Sermon on the Mount. It's just all over the place. You know, blessed are the, are the meek, right? For they're going to be the ones who inherit the earth. The meek are those who, in compassionate gentleness, restrain strength. They restrain their strength for the good of other people. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. He tells us in the same sermon there to not retaliate, not to strike back, but to offer your other cheek. He, he tells them, you've heard it said this way. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And this is exactly what he did. He didn't come to fight Rome or the religious leaders with a sword, but the swinging sword of the violence of humanity. But the swinging sword of the violence of humanity was sheathed into Christ's own body when he took that violence upon himself on the cross. To break the cycle, to turn enemies into brothers, into sisters. Jesus was distinct. Jesus was different. He brought with him the ways of heaven that were not like the ways of this world. Jesus was a person of contrast. He was different than all that was around him. He was light in the darkness. He was water in the wilderness. He was peace. He was calm in the chaos. And, and he knew. He knew something that we so often get muddled in, in our brains. At least I do. He, he knew that love and truth were not defined by popular opinion and ballot. He knew that you could be the distinct minority and be with the Father and be loving and truthful even though the masses were against you. Sometimes I think we forget that. 
sometimes we operate as though love and truth were defined by popular opinion. You know, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, once, once said, uh, when he was asked, he, well, here's the question. They said, where is Christ to be found? And his answer is simple, it's pure, it's beautiful. Where is Christ to be found? He answered with this, he has chosen to be found in his church. Christ has chosen to be found in his church. Friends, we are distinctive in this world because our Savior is distinctive. He's brilliant. He's shimmering. He loves others. He died in our place. It seems to me that that's how we should be. Now, um, <clears throat> do you remember that cryptic thing Jesus said to John and James? Verse 23. He says, oh, you, oh, yeah, you will. You'll drink the cup. Don't worry. He says in verse 23, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. What in the world is he talking about? It's Jesus' brilliant way of saying, John, James, you will be great in this kingdom, but not in the way you think. Not in the way you're going hard after it right now. It's going to be different. It's going to be different. You will drink from my cup. Yeah, the cup of victory, but first it's a cup of suffering, which I will drink to the dregs. You will drink of that too. You will suffer for this kingdom. And in your suffering, beauty will be born into this world. You will learn that true power is found in loving others and sacrificing oneself and paying great costs. You will learn these things. And you too think thrones of power and fame, uh, command influence. But what you ask for my father's given to some, some other guys. Jesus is referring to the criminals, the left and the right. This is those at his left and those at his right. And Jesus is conflating in his brilliance and understanding how it up and down and how it all works. He's conflating being enthroned with being on a cross. And he's saying, yes, the father has already set two guys on my left and my right. And they will be crucified too. And my cross will be my throne. I will be enthroned by going to a cross because I will be seen as the king of love who died for, for humanity that has rejected me. So love could actually explode out into this world. The kingdom of heaven will reign victorious over the darkness of this world, but it comes humbly vulnerably, sacrificially, and on a strange timetable that so often doesn't sync up with our own. <laughs> now, uh, think about what the cross produced there in history then. See, the church was radically distinctive from the Roman culture that dominated the world. Born out of the gospel of Jesus, the church loved the enemy, loved the poor, loved the vulnerable, loved the body, loved the other. Now, their strange and slander distinctiveness actually was a strength, for in these perceived weaknesses, the love and power of God was seen in the world, and people were drawn to this Jesus. As the church echoed Jesus' ethic, as the church taught about who Jesus was and what he did, 
as the church sacrificed for others, as they refused the way of the sword and coercion, a brilliant beauty was unleashed in the world, and the church grew and grew and grew. Look at these numbers really quickly. Estimations have the number of Jesus' followers at approximately 10,000 in 100 A.D. 100,000 in 200 A.D. 5 to 6 million in 300 A.D. That's a curve. Look at that exponential curve. That deep, wide, and exponential growth came through the power of God moving in his distinct people who gave their lives for others, people like us. The power of the bloodied cross triumphs over the power of the bloody sword. This is why the cross hangs before our eyes every Sunday. It's the way of Christ to enter into death, enter into suffering and agony, to come out to eternal life. And, you know, this is how it opened up in history. The church grew. You know, it's a lot more complicated than those three simple steps there. I guarantee that. But God, through the power of his spirit, through a very distinct, weird group of people, brought beauty into this world. And I think we need to hear that today because he's doing the same thing in 2022. Right now, he's still using odd, peculiar people who are distinct from the culture of death that we live in to bring hope and joy and peace to this world. So when we embrace the distinctive practices of following Jesus, loving others at great cost to ourselves, when we refuse to bully, when we refuse to step on others to advance ourselves, when we refuse the need to have the last like crushing word for our opponent. When we refuse to take part of the toxic culture of offense and counterattack. When we stop violently yanking at that seatbelt to show who is boss. When the true power of loving gentleness is released into this world. God does incredible things we never could imagine. He overturns empires through weaklings. He confounds the wise sophisticates through those who seem foolish. That gives me hope. (laughs) So what might he be doing through just the few hundred of us here in 2022? What might he do through us who know that the way up is not up, but the way up is down? How might the world change when we die to ourselves? That untold numbers might come to know life. So let's, this year as we enter into this year, as we enter into the miraculous of what God is doing, let's not downplay the scandalous, strange truth of our faith. Let's let's embrace difference. Embrace difference. Don't chafe at being distinct. Celebrate it as light in the darkness. Let's rejoice in being a contrast community. Let's be a bit strange, oddly holy, so to speak. Let's be brilliantly distinctive. Now, um, lastly, you know, as we go, here's just three simple, brief things that we could practice this week. And the first one is this it's pray daily. Pray daily for the courage and the strength to go counterculturally down so that we can go kingdomly up. Because let's be honest, it's hard. 
when everything's pushing against you, it's hard to go the opposite way. We need his spirit to empower us to live this way. So pray daily for the courage and the strength to go counterculturally down so that we might go kingdomly up. Pray for your enemies. And you might be thinking, I don't, have, I don't really have any, any enemies. Well, how about this? Think of those who make life difficult for you. Pray for them. Pray for them. Don't just be dreaming about, you know, your, your perfect one-liner that you can hop online to throw at them. Pray for them. And then third, what if we try being downers? Like, be a downer. Encourage each other to be downers. Be a downer. Lift others up in love by kneeling down to serve them. Find one thing to do this week to serve somebody else that is costly to you. And you will find the vitality and life and love of God flowing through you as you do. You will know what it means to be a a child of your Father. So in the words of the Apostle James, humble yourself before the Lord. He'll lift you up. The way up, praise God, is not up. It's down. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you've done. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you would... Um, take a nosedive into the very darkness and the hurt and the suffering of this world to bring redemption and restoration and to turn it all on its head. And so, um, Father, give us the grace, the wisdom, the strength um, to go down, to lift others up, ultimately that you would be worshipped and seen and loved. We thank you for what you've done for us. We love you. In the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.